0: Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years.
1: Good evening and welcome to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Over the next hour, we'll review the current international economic, business and geopolitical issues that impact markets at home and abroad. Coming up on the show, on the week the President of Ireland embarked on a state visit to the UK. We speak to founder of Ireland Inc, Ian Highland, about the ongoing trade links between our two nations. And David Beaton of Cantor Fitzgerald will deliver our international markets overview. But first, joining me in the studio are our two panellists, economist Constantine uh, Goodieff, and professor of economics at Trinity College, Dublin, uh, Ronan Lyons. You're both very welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. Uh, we'll be discussing AIB's plans to establish a 500 million euro loan fund for the Irish agricultural sector and Greece's re-entry to the bond markets but first the International Monetary Fund says deflation is one of the biggest threats to Ireland's economy the IMF in its latest World Economic Outlook which was released last week predicted inflation across the euro area will be well below ECB targets of 2% and we've been speaking about deflation on the show over the past two or three weeks now while the report The report forecasts that global output will grow by over 3.5% this year. It says that the recent tensions in Ukraine could pose a threat to the world economy. Uh, The report uh, focuses on Ireland in the sense that it looks at inflation and says that Irish inflation will be a mere 0.6% this year. If you look at the GDP forecast coming from the IMF for Ireland, it's at 1.7% for 2014 and 2.5% for 2015. And that's way, way below the sort of figures that we've seen coming out of uh, both the ESRI and IBIC. So I I put it to you, gentlemen, uh, who's right?
2: Well, uh, neither party. Neither the the internal or the external are probably right because... uh, economists and analysts in general are terrible at making forecasts and predictions. Um, in fact, for most economists, that's practically none of their work. Um, uh, and yet they're sort of wheeled out all the time and say, what do you think is going to happen? And they've, they have to come up with these heuristics um, to, to basically come up with a number for the year, but mostly they, they take a little bit of momentum. The IMF's, the, the way they do it, it's always five years from now will be equilibrium. Uh, and basically if you look at the reports all the way from, you know, back in 2006 to now, you'll always see whatever's happening now is the shock, certainly, but over the next three, four, five years, things will calm down. But of course, that's not the way the world actually works. So you've got to take all those figures with a pinch of salt. Uh, and in, in the Irish case, the salt has to be, much greater than a pinch because both GDP and GNP are now less reliable um, for Ireland than for, for any other country GDP because of the usual transfer pricing and GNP because the clampdown on tax havens means that a whole load of companies are now setting up as Irish HQ, um, and that means they feature in GNP, even though they mightn't necessarily have any Irish jobs. So both sets of figures now are are effectively uh, have to be taken with a large dollop of salt.
1: But there, there's a very wide spread between sort of 1.7 percent and three and a half percent. So on which side of that sort of divide would you be, Constantine?
0: Well, I mean, if I'm forced to choose the side, I would be on the IMF side. There is a consistency in their forecast. Let's remember that this is pretty much bang on the same forecast for this year and certainly is identical to the forecast for the next year that they produced in October last year. So they're looking at the longer term trends. They're looking at the underlying dynamics much more than we do. We have kind of a mix of the hopium driven expectation that something will turn up, such as the growth will pick up in terms of experts, for example, then global growth will translate more robustly into the underlying dynamics in the economy. We also have quite a bit of a denial, I think, in this economy. Our forecasters have a lot of denial in terms of understanding how the shift that um, Ronan mentioned earlier between the experts of services and experts of goods is impacting employment, impacting domestic demand, and on and on. From my point of view, there is still one measure which is relatively accurate, which is still left in the national accounts, which is worth looking at, and nobody looks at it, and that's the total demand. And total demand, whether it's total domestic demand or final domestic demand, with a slight difference between the two figures, um, is really measures what's happening on the ground. It is the total investment, private investment, government investment in the economy. It is the government consumption and public consu- and private consumption in the economy as well. When you put all those things together, this is really what's hiring people. This is really what keeps us you know, awake at night or lets us sleep calmly at night. And that is not growing. We're still in a crisis there that is still shrinking as far as we have the data. Everything else might be rosy, but as long as the average punter is not feeling an increase in terms and not seeing a real, tangible increase in terms of their income, um, after-tax income, that's not going to happen. The other thing is also IMF and all the rest of the economy is quite often confuse the causes and effects. Okay, so you take for example the deflation argument. Um, argument that deflation is bad is acceptable by everybody. However, the problem that then arises is: inflation good if deflation is bad. And then you have to look at the sources of the inflation. So, for example, March figures came out yesterday in terms of the consumer price indices, and voila, we have a little bit of an inflation pickup. Is that great? Sounds like good on the surface. There's less of a risk of a deflation. But in reality, what's happening underneath there is that it was driven by the two factors, by the health insurance, prices going up and premiums going up, and by the local property tax effect. So, in other words, the state extraction of funds from the real economy meaning less consumption in the economy, less investment in the economy, is now the good news. That's of course, is absurd. So if you look at the history of the current crisis, the private sector is deflated, the prices in private sectors deflated by about 11%. The prices in public and state-controlled sectors, such as healthcare, education, such as health insurance, um, energy and uh, transportation, um, have gone up by about 63%. So we have rampant inflation, too high of an inflation, which is stretching the capacity of the households to purchase and invest and save for the future. And at the, on the state side, and on the other side, the real economy, the employment, if you want supporting inflation is actually negative.
1: Well, it's very interesting. I think about uh, two or three weeks ago we, we coined with, a, with another prof, uh, professor from uh, Trinity College the, um, the, the term in deflation, which is where inflation can run right alongside, of course, it's not a real economic term, but uh, uh, where inflation can run quite happily alongside very strong deflationary effects. But the, the number of 0.6% run in, in the report that came from the IMF is below even the European inflation Rate, which is about 0.8, 0.9 at the moment. And it seems to me that people are ignoring the, the possibility of a sort of Japanese-style inflationary, uh, deflationary trap. Well,
2: the, the, the Japanese case, and myself and Constantine may differ on this, but the Japanese case was a, a particular one where you had a saver economy. Um, you had people whose income was tied up with interest rates, uh, and therefore the Japan trap was applying sort of Western European and North American remedies to a, a peculiarly Japanese situation situation i don't think we're in that situation in ireland i think what we should have learned or what um not just we but i think the imf should have learned as well is that uh, thinking about one rate of inflation or deflation is probably the wrong way to go i mean consumer goods inflation is important it matters but presumably asset inflation if we've learned anything from the decade of 2007 is that we should be monitoring asset inflation as well and it gets to the point that constantine was making it's not just one rate of inflation nobody cares that the the, the price index of computing power has collapsed over the last 20 years in fact that's quite a good thing right it's significantly cheaper now to to process um, than it was 20 years ago and it will continue to do that and nobody worries about that same with clothing you look at the price index of clothing it is down significantly over the last 10 15 years uh, on the other hand you've got government sectors you've got asset prices that that may be uh, that may be rising rapidly uh, with government services, it might be five or six percent a year. Um, with with asset prices in Dublin now, it could be fifteen, twenty percent a year. So, uh, by saying that deflation or lack of inflation is the key threat, completely misses Constantine's point, which is that you need to understand where
1: the inflation or deflation is the coming com- from, the components of the index itself. Exactly, what's the cause, well, not the well, not the what, symptom. If you read the, the if you read the press this week, and were there were, I think it was across the papers on on Thursday and Friday about uh, the the recession being over and, and and uh, 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 austerity ending, etc. It seems to me that the more optimistic forecast rely totally on consumption and investment from business. Where is
0: that going to come from, if at all? Well, it's predominantly actually relies on the investment. Uh, the most optimistic uh, report in terms of a forecast that I've seen is the SRIs one. Um, and that's really the most optimistic in terms of the consumption. They're forecasting, as far as I remember, the growth of 1.5%. Now, I don't find that realistic to begin with. But even at 1.5%, that's really not a growth that you can talk about in terms of the real recovery. So it's almost all of that is the investment. Investment is driven, and IMF is actually dead funny on that, you know, in some economic terms, you know, funny. Um, They identify the sources of growth for investment, not just in Ireland, but around the Eurozone economies, um, as being driven by the fact that we had an unprecedented collapse in a stock of capital as a result of the depreciation and not replacement of the depreciating capital with the new capital. So because we didn't maintain our railroads, they're su- in such dire states that just as an example, take yes, that our roads, you know, are they in such dire state now that we're going to have growth simply because we just have to, have to, have to, have to repair it. I called it the key of model of economic growth. You destroy the city first and then you generate growth by trying to <laughs> rebuild it. But there is very interesting thing about what you touched upon about Japan's scenario I actually think that we're in a worse shape than Japan, not just Ireland, but the Eurozone itself. And here's why. Japan, and Ronan is correct, Japan is a slightly different economy in many ways in terms of it's a saver economy. But it is also an economy which is in the 1980s was driving world, world economy in terms of its experts. It is highly competent economy in terms of its indigenous expert generation and ability to sell into the international markets. Like Eurozone economy. It also was dependent on imports of certain inputs, for example, energy inputs into the production and the likes as well. And what happened in Japan is that everything boiled down to the interest rates and the cost of the capital. And when you look at our capacity to control our interest rates and exchange rates, we have none. So Japan had the problem in terms of the mismatch between exp- experts and the imports and a mismatch of the currency valuation. They were able to somewhat move away from it by very aggressive, long-term sustained monetary policy. Not so much fiscal policy, but monetary policy. When you look at the eurozone itself, we have no monetary policy which is accommodative of the foreign exchange rates. Now Draghi keeps talking about that they are discussing them and all. But here we are six years into the crisis and they're still discussing stuff.
1: Okay, well, we're going to have to uh, leave the IMF report there. Um, Looking at the range of forecasts, it reminds me of that U.S. president who said, will someone please find me a one-handed economist? Um, uh, So uh, uh, I think that sort of exemplifies that. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, but coming up, our panel will discuss a 500 million uh, loan book for the agricultural sector. Stay tuned.
0: The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome
1: back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. If you want to get in touch with the show, email us at TheCurrency at Newstalk.ie or tweet at TheCurrencyNT. We're always interested to hear your views. Now, before the break, our panelists, economist uh, Konstantin Gudieff and professor of economics Ronan Lyons, were discussing the latest IMF world economic outlook and comparing that to more recent optimistic outlooks. Uh, published last week here in Ireland. But now we're going to move on to reports of a new credit line for farming. The AIB is considering to provide an extra €500 million in loans for the agricultural sector. The move uh, is obviously going to be welcomed by farmers who feared a shortage of lending after ACC Bank announced its exit from the Irish market last October. Now, the bank says the removal of milk quotas next year will give the sector an opportunity to expand. Farmers will also be able to use the fund to refinance existing loans. Uh, Ronan, do you think there'll be demand for this level of lending?
2: Uh, I mean I, I think so. I mean the sector as a whole you 've got to remember is basically underwritten by the EU taxpayer, so uh, the collateral there is incredibly strong um, that the uh, there 's a system of supports that mean the banks know they 're going to get their money back and because the banks know they 're going to get their money back they 're prepared to lend and because the farmers know that there's somebody going to there is there 's a backstop for demand regardless and um, they should be prepared certainly the younger generation of farmers should be prepared to take on um, a bit of debt and I think it's it's, it's useful for the sector as a whole um, to, to have capital. Um, the, the more we can, I suppose, New Zealandify our agricultural sector, make it more capital intensive, make it more export focused, standing on its own two feet, the better. And, and that needs a huge injection of capital. Um, I suppose uh, for th- for the rest of the economy, it's it's you know you're looking in with jealousy at, at what what's happening
1: with the agricultural sector. Yeah, it's gone very well in the last uh, in the last year. But w- how much of these loans do you think would just be used to refinance existing loans? Are, are they because the AI- AIB has has presumably got the funding from Europe at uh, from the ECB at very very low rates? Will it be recycling those at lower rates to to farmers, and will they be able to take advantage of that?
0: Well, I think when you take the risk weighting. Uh, that Ron was talking about um, and you look at the fact that the, effectively the European demand um, is controlled to by, largest, uh, by to a large extent by the CAP, by Common Agricultural Policy um, this whole scenario to me is Allocating 500 million to a tiny subsector of the economy, because let us remember that agriculture, despite all of our talk about its importance in the economy and everything else, is really, really small when it comes to national accounts. It's a very small component of the GDP. Um, we don't have high value added agriculture on appreciable scale. Uh, milk quarters, we're talking about milk quarters still in this country, where the, if you look at, for example, the countries um, of the Central Europe and the countries of the uh, Northern Europe, where they add value Uh, Before they export the products, we still produce generic cheeses and export it around the world versus, you know, high, high value added branded cheese. So as a result of that, Irish agriculture doesn't need 500 million. I'm sure they can use it. But the point from the economy's point of view, these are scarce resources. Should they be better allocated somewhere else? To Should SMEs, we find, to
1: SMEs um, for example, or, particular, to, particular or type of
0: companies? Particular type of companies. I don't think we need a huge investment in the infrastructure, but there is certainly some shortages and a tighter spot in terms of the infrastructure support. Uh, that's beyond any doubts, but also beyond any doubts, there are good SMEs out there, there are good companies, indigenous companies, which can use that capital with a greater efficiency. What really needs to happen in Irish agriculture is that that there has to be a focus on value added. And value added, as Ronan said, is capital intensive, so lending is good there in that context. But we are not guaranteed that that lending is going to go into the adding value to the production. It can go, as you are saying, to refinancing the loans. But beyond that, there is an issue of management. There is an issue of shareholding. There is an issue of actual land holding as well, which is significant. We have two small of a producers, quite often, who cannot be efficient, cannot be competitive without the subsidies from the EU. And when we talk about New Zealand's agriculture, New Zealand's agriculture has undergone very significant consolidation and massive transformations. It is independent of subsidies. It's the only agricultural system on appreciable scale in advanced economies, which is independent of subsidies. And it ships goods to Ireland competitively to our own. That's the whole point of it. So if you want to see change in agriculture, you don't need to pump 500 million first. You first need to induce a change at the level of the ownership of the land and the management of the companies.
1: Well, we're going to move on to uh, to Greece now. Um, and uh, Greece uh, came back to the bond markets last week. It's, it's sold its first sovereign bonds in almost four years. Um it, I presume it's an attempt to signal that it has weathered the worst of its economic crisis. Um, it, it managed to get away 3 billion euro worth of five-year bonds. Um, the yield was at about, was just under 5%, so they're not exactly cheap money, but one wouldn't expect it to be. Um, the country is yet to announce plans for the sale of its 10-year bonds, which really are the marker bond. Um, it's believed those yields are, are, are probably just below 6% down from about 40% two years ago. So the original plan was to begin selling bonds in the second half of this year. Um, is it a surprise that they've re-entered the bond markets early and, and why would they be taking advantage of it now?
2: Well, it's there's there's, funny actually. There's a there's a certain pattern between the last story and this story, and that's ultimately the EU is at the back of this, right? So the EU is is the the ultimate collateral for uh, lending to farms in Ireland, and ultimately the EU is the collateral here. Um, in, in obviously a different institutional form, but the only reason Greece is able to go anywhere near the markets at the rate it is is because it's got all that EU support. Um, if you know. It, they need, Europe needs some sort of measure of success for Greece as soon as possible, um, to give it any hope of getting down from 175% of, of GDP. Uh, I mean, still, by any objective measure, that doesn't look in any way sustainable. Um, so I, I still think, you know, Greece is hugely problematic from that point of view. There's no growth. Uh, how they've been able to do this, in my view, it's entirely because of EU support. I
0: agree uh, to a very great extent there. But let's, you know, kind of step away back and look at the IMF's data in terms of Greece, which was released this week. Um, if you compare Greece's primary account, um, government primary account, when you strip out the expenditure on the, um, interest on debt, uh, Greece is in a healthier position than Ireland. If you take out primary structural balance, which is the actually, again, net of interest and also evening out or smoothing out over the business cycle away from the recessionary effects on the balance, Greece has gone into surplus on that account two years ago. Ireland is about to go only this year. So, in other words, in some of the parameters, Greece is actually performing better than Ireland. None of that, of course, matters in the markets because we're looking at right now, if you look, for example, what's happening in the global corporate junk bond markets, um, the corporations with the credit ratings of effectively near bankruptcy are being able to do away with leveraged debt left, right and center in huge volumes. The whole market globally right now is effectively riding on a wave of the huge liquidity supplies through the quantitative easing. But if you dig in and so the Greece is also being able to do so and Portugal as well and all the rest of them but really there is a bit of a bad news here hidden behind with all the expectation of what the ECB is going to do and what ECB might do in terms of Greece if it were to run into the problem the current valuations of the Greek uh, debt including the Spanish debt as well and the Italian debt and the Irish debt and the Portuguese debt is very simply signaling that the yields are going down and as a result of that you can expect no devaluation of the euro in the long run and that's the bad news for the real economy because euro currently is grossly vastly overvalued vis-a-vis US dollar and vis-a-vis uh, stock.
1: Yeah, we we've, we've discussed that and and also in past in past shows we've discussed Euro Draghi's sort of ha- uh, talking a lot uh, but actually not delivering but that's been enough for markets so far there seems to be a, a great desire amongst bond investors to be buying uh, uh, euro-based sovereign debt at the moment um, which worries me given the the sovereign debt nexus that we have between the banks and and uh, uh, and their purchases of, of host nation debt are we heading for a debt crisis in europe
2: Well, to take a step back, I mean, the the very first item we covered about the the IMF, you know, worrying about deflation uh, and this story, they're actually ultimately connected because why is deflation a worry? Not in and of itself, falling prices are a good thing. It's a worry because of what it, it, it signifies, which is a complete lack of confidence in the future. Uh, Poor expectations about what the future economic conditions are going to be like. Um, And and as Constantine just described, all these various forms of quantitative easing and support from the various central banks, they're all designed to, to make people make a decision about the future. People would much rather say, do you know what, actually, I'm not sure what it's going to be like in five years' time or ten years' time, precisely because of high levels of debt, the interconnection between the various sovereigns and the various financial systems. And, and, and because of of that... All this support is coming and people are saying, well, do you know what, if there's this much support and they're indicating that rates are going to be low for so much into the future, then do you know what, I can take a, a three year punt at 5% uh, with a certain proportion. I can take a little bit of risk, but ultimately the appetite for risk isn't there. It's a, it's a fake appetite for risk precisely because we have such abnormal government
0: support or monetary yeah, so support. So
1: effectively you say if that crutch was removed, the patient would fall over. Uh, yeah, exactly,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, the, the patient currently is walking on an assumption, and these are institutional investors, really, who are the holders of the debt and the banks as well. They're walking on an assumption around uh, the markets that, first of all, the Bank of Japan, Bank of England, and the Fed, vast amounts of liquidity pumped over the recent years is going to be somehow continued and sustained by the, by the ECB, which is an open question. But beyond that, there is always an, a question of strategy. All of the investment currently going into the peripheral bonds and, in in fact, into pretty much every bit of the government debt being floated out there in the market is really based on expectation that unwinding those positions, exiting them, should things turn south, will be very easy. As we know, the classic bubble situation is when the investors assume that they will be able to exit the market should it turn south. And, of course, when everybody exits and runs for the exit, you have the panic. We are sitting, in my view, on a very significant pile of risk in terms of the government debt, not just in the eurozone, but also outside of the eurozone. The canary in the mine is, once again, the peripheral countries. Well, look, thank you very
1: much. Uh, that's all we have time for on, on that, unfortunately. Uh, my thanks to economist Constantine uh, Gurdjieff and professor of economics at Trinity College, Dublin, Ronan Lyons. I think everyone would agree we have uh, two left-handed economists there who gave us uh, some straight views. Which is always a relief. Uh, coming up, Anglo Irish business relations. Stay tuned.
0: The Currency with Nick Bullman brought to you by FEXCo Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency
1: with me, Nick Bullman. Uh, don't forget to get in touch and have your say. Email thecurrency at newstalk.ie or you can tweet us at The Currency NT. While President Michael D. Higgins embarked on a historical state visit to uh, the UK this week, uh, Irish and British businesses have been busy joining forces at the London Stock Exchange. Ireland Day 2000 2014 brought more than a hundred business leaders and participants from financial markets together to open London trading and reinforce the relationships between Irish business and global markets joining me on the line to tell us more is founder of Ireland Inc Ian Highland uh, Ian uh, good evening uh, good evening Nick uh, Ian tell good us evening. tell us a little bit more about uh, Ireland Day 2014
3: well uh, Nick it was, a, it was a magnificent milestone for all of us. Uh, we are in our second and Day London, uh, on the back of our fourth and New York, recently at the New York Stock Exchange. So, yes, it was particularly significant given the president's uh, historic first state visit to the UK. And uh, really, Nick, it was a, it was a unique Optic uh, 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 from an Irish business perspective, as you can imagine, we Ireland Inc. opened the London Stock Market yesterday, led by Martin O'Toole. And um, uh, in, in that context, you know, 59 Irish companies are now listed on the London Stock Exchange. So, so in itself, is a, is a very positive and powerful message uh, to key global markets.
1: I mean, we're sort of seeing a, a real uh, new, fresh approach to Anglo-Irish relations. Was that sort of reflected in the day? Was there a real sense of that uh, on on the London Stock Exchange?
3: yeah i think but i think making sure have gotta remember that the 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 joint business communities have been trailblazers in 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 their ever the evolving relationship over the last two or three decades anyway right but yes they certainly i suppose reinforced that and uh i suppose communicated that in a very powerful way not just to the uk or indeed ireland but to key international markets uh via their international media outlets and so forth and yes Certainly the sentiment was about using the, the, the visits of Michael D Higgins and indeed the hospitality of Her Majesty to, to I suppose, uh, rubber stamp and move to the next level of our relationship.
1: Well, uh, and Ireland Inc. has been extraordinarily successful, I think, in bringing a real uh, sort of amalgamation of people to your events, um, from politicians to, to global business leaders. What, what was the sort of talking point of the day? What, what, what were people discussing?
3: There were, there, were, there were a couple of key elements to this, Nick. I mean, firstly, we, of course, talked about investment uh, between our two communities. Uh, we talked about a redefinition of our relationship. I mean, there's a, there's a new Irish in Britain. Uh, there, you know, let's not forget, there are 41,000 Irish directors of UK companies now, right? which is uh, which is magnificent, as we can all imagine. Uh, you know, the 16 billion euro in trade uh, between our two countries and uh, 1 billion euro a week in actual fact, uh, uh is now the talking point from that perspective. So what we're actually saying here is that not only are we reliant on the UK and, and they're a very important trading partner, but Ireland is also very useful to the UK. I mean, there are, as I mentioned earlier on, there are 200,000 uh, jobs now reliant on Irish companies across the UK which in itself is something we haven't, we haven't seen before in terms of our message.
1: And how are you encouraging uh, the, the development of, of that sort of, uh, or the economic development between uh, Ireland and the UK? I mean, what are the sort of programs that you're looking at?
3: Well, I mean, look, we, we believe that the, the private sector should control its own destiny. So, so um, uh, in, in this regard, uh, there are a number of initiatives uh, talked about during the week, most of which were, were talked about in, in sort of a, uh, let's recognize the power of working with the uk internationally right so taking the UK and Ireland as, as, as a joint message is, is incredibly powerful across the world in key markets and not just not just singularly so what we were talking about yesterday uh, was the the as suppose the impact that Irish corporations have uh, across the uk and across a number of sectors so food particularly uh, you know we met Green Corps with president Patrick Cobley, uh, gary McGann, forty one thousand staff. Across uh, the smartphone, a Kappa group, uh, the energy sector is particularly powerful. And if you look across the London Stock Exchange, in many Irish companies are listed, uh, there's a large proportion of those now will be in the energy space. Uh, and not just, by the way, operating out of Ireland, uh, but using the London Stock Exchange to list and uh, release capital.
1: And just just uh, something that's become you know slightly more topical recently is Brexit, Britain's you know potential or possible uh, uh, exit from Europe. Was is that a concern, or was it discussed at all by by the delegates and uh, and people that you had at the the event?
3: Yes, it is a concern. I mean, you know, Ireland has been a great, uh, a great uh, uh, European partner. Uh, the UK uh, are a great voice for the free, free uh, movement of goods and, and people across Europe. And from an Irish perspective, it would be very concerning uh, if, if the UK broke away in that regard. However, at the same time, from the UK perspective, uh, let's not forget that one in seven British jobs rely on their EU membership.
1: Yeah, so it's a massive impact. And at the moment, I don't think it looks particularly likely, but uh, clearly there is pressure mounting in the UK on that. Now, uh, last March, um, Ireland Inc, I think, launched a a six-year strategy to increase business um, with another global partner, the USA. Can you just fill us in a little bit on that?
3: Well, our our, our six year uh, uh, vision, as it were, uh, Ireland. Uh, it is important to to, to note uh, relies uh, significantly uh, on exports, as we look from a GDP perspective. All right, Um so so it is. It is our view that Ireland is a vision. Uh, we have a vision. We, we've done very well. The government done a great job in the last uh, number of years. Uh, through the, our, the people taking some pain, obviously. Uh, but what we believe is that let's, let's sit down some milestones. So over the next six years, a 2020 uh, a vision or business plan for Ireland, done by the way, uh, put together in partnerships with with key networks. And that's what we're actually working with at moment. So it's an Ireland think initiative. And we hope to work with a number of key networks across the private sector, not just locally in Ireland, but also internationally across the U.S., The UK and also let's not forget Asia, which is very very important to Ireland. We've got a number of uh, very exciting companies uh, such as PCH, employing uh, a number of thousand people across Asia also.
1: And Ian, just tell me the what was the genesis of of Ireland Inc. How did uh, how did it come about, and how long has the uh, has Ireland Inc. been going for?
3: Okay, we we launched Ireland Inc. in two thousand and eleven at the New York Stock Exchange with our uh, inaugural Ireland Day. And I mean, the idea behind Ireland, I think, is to promote Irish business interests across global markets uh, from a private sector perspective. And in so doing, <coughs> reciprocate, I suppose, the assistance to grow Irish companies in markets such as the UK and in the US by delivering jobs. In the US alone, Nick, uh, Irish companies account for some of the region of 140,000 jobs across the United States of America and something similar in the UK. So let's not forget that uh, it is in our interest to grow those jobs if we can grow
1: those companies well and i think that the certainly coming back to the uk the relations this week uh, with with uh, the the president's visit to uh, the uk uh, the welcome uh, that the queen received when uh, when she was here in ireland and hopefully was reciprocated and i think in good measure um, from what i've read in the press um, has to have improved uh, or helped improve some of those relations
3: i think week was quite incredible and I think if you look at the international media coverage of this week uh, both sides to themselves proud uh, I'm speaking from a business perspective we're right across the communities of the UK uh, certainly both her uh, Majesty uh, made us feel uh, incredibly welcome and indeed I think president Higgins uh, did a most magnificent job and if you if you listen to the words uh, we, the, most of the sentiments around this week's uh, activities were about thinking ahead uh, Nick and not looking backwards
1: I think confidence is such an important thing and I think Ireland Inc is obviously playing uh, a great role in that Ian thank you very much for joining us and uh, good luck with uh, with uh, your projects as they go forward that was uh, Ian Highland founder of uh, Ireland Inc after the break David Beaton of Cantor Fitzgerald Stockbrokers joins us in studio for an international markets overview so stay tuned
0: The Currency with Nick Bullman brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services protecting your profits for 30 years welcome back to the currency now as
1: always it's time for our international markets update joining me in the studio is David Beaton fund manager at Cantor Fitzgerald to give us um, a markets roundup for for last week and an outlook for next week a lot of economic data coming out. Uh, we saw a, a bit of a sell-off in, in NASDAQ. Um, markets looking decidedly wobbly at the moment.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the performance of the markets for the, f- for the first quarter of the year, uh, this was a theme that we kind of uh, were talking about going into the, at the start of the year, that volatility was likely to increase. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that, and it reflects the performance of markets last week. Um, you've got uncertain data, mixed data coming out of China. It's been decidedly soft. Uh, There's clearly the uncertainty about the Federal Reserve and its tapering process of quantitative easing or the reduction of asset purchases. Mixed economic data coming out of Europe. uh, And I think the main focus uh, for markets now and why we're seeing this bit of uh, volatility is market valuations. And as we enter the uh, first quarter reporting season from the US next week, I think that comes very sharply into focus.
1: Good. Well, just looking at some of the economic uh, data coming out uh, last week, the IMF came out with with a number of sort of uh, reports looking at both the U.S., China, and elsewhere, which which do you think looks most vulnerable out of let's say US, the big economic blocks us China, uh, U.K., and and uh, Europe? Well,
4: I think if I was to pick two, if I could uh, yeah. go that way, I think China certainly short term. Um, is is vulnerable to the change of strategy that the uh, ruling party are trying to implement. Uh, China, having uh, exceeded growth expectations for many a year, is now starting to look a little bit softer on the data front. And that's really to do with the fact they shift, they shift emphasis from being kind of a, an infrastructural construction build economy to a more uh, internal consumption consumer led economy and clearly when you implement changes like that you're going to have some sort of uncertainty in relation to uh, the path of, of, of growth and we saw that with the export numbers last week they were down uh, 6.6% imports were down 11.3% so there is a concern out there that China uh, will not meet its own targets of 7.5% growth this year um, so that's one of the vulnerable economies, and, and it
1: was quite interesting. I don't want to cut across you there, but it was quite interesting because the U.S. I, I noticed last week was starting to uh, discuss currency wars again uh, in terms of saying that the the Chinese were were actively managing their currency down, presumably to offset that that uh, that loss. Indeed, you know,
4: and I, I think that's something that. Currencies is an, is another factor which markets will look at closely, and that probably leads me to the second most vulnerable economic region. Although it is starting to show signs of tentative recovery, is the eurozone. You have fundamental problems within the eurozone that the ECB uh, have failed to to, to 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 grasp. When you compare them to the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve, where uh, you have inflation which is well below uh, their target level of two percent, we're running at about point seven point eight percent at the last reading you have unemployment at uh, very high rates and you have a very strong euro I mean uh, at the close of business on Friday uh, the euro was trading in around just under 139 so uh, that's that's a, a, a big headwind for export-led economies such as Germany uh, in the Eurozone and will act as a bit of a headwind for the potential of further economic growth going into uh, the second half of this year and into t- 2015.
1: I've, I've said it before, there's this sort of Shakespearean willing suspension of disbelief, which is where anything can happen on stage until the, the bubble is sort of pricked and burst. But um, why, are, why are investors still relying on more- what the ECB and what Draghi has to say when it seems to be more words than action?
4: Well, it, it certainly has been more words than action. I mean, if you, if you look back at his, his infamous comment uh, about we'll do whatever it takes to save the euro, and believe me, it will be enough, uh, back in July 2013, uh, when he also announced the potential uh, for outright monetary transactions or buying of short-dated bonds of, of, of peripheral nations, he hasn't had to buy one single bond. Purely by speaking, he has got he has driven bond yields lower, so it's more affordable for distressed countries like, or then distressed companies like uh, countries like Spain, Italy, Portugal, and indeed Ireland, to actually access the capital markets and the debt markets. And where you, when you see where yields have fallen uh, over the course of the last three or four months, I mean, Ireland had an auction, it raised one billion last week of 10-year money at 2.91%, a record low. In, back in 2008, 2009, our bond yields were up around 14, 15%. So Draghi is continuing to talk the talk. He hasn't walked the walk yet. He, he keeps on talking about we're looking at unconventional and non-standard operational measures or monetary measures. QE he has specifically mentioned. And I think that's interesting um, that the uh, ECB council are now grasping the nettle of possibly having to do some outright bond purchases Um the one thing that I'd be concerned about, and I think this is where there's a little bit of uncertainty for the market as well, you have divergence in central bank policy. You're going to have the ECB talking about quantitative easing uh, just as the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are looking to roll back from their QE programs and looking to normalize monetary policy. So I think that's going to be a challenge for markets as well.
1: And for investors, what I think, and I think that's a very, very good point you raise, is that it actually, in contrast, makes Abenomics and Japanese QE, which was already QE on steroids relative to uh, US QE, looks suddenly very attractive because you've got this relative... Uh, contraction of QE elsewhere in the world and if anything an acceleration of QE by the Bank of Japan is Japan a place that people should be looking at?
4: I think Japan when you look at the performance of Japan last week alone it was down 7.5% I think there are opportunities there in Japan Uh, the biggest problem for Japan I think Abbey has to deliver on his third quiver out of his arrow so to speak Uh, Christine Lagarde made reference to that a couple of weeks ago Um, certainly uh, the The critical factor for anyone looking at Japan will be the currency. Uh, And clearly, as a big export market, uh, the yen uh, needs to weaken. It's rallied against the dollar because the dollar, and that's the other surprising thing, has remained stubbornly weak against the euro, particularly uh, over the course of the last um, two or three months, despite the fact that we have the Fed reducing asset purchases, so therefore not pumping as much liquidity into the system. The ECB talking about pumping more liquidity Liquidity in, and I think investors are kind of. It comes back to what you were saying. They're 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 hanging on Mario Draghi and the ECB to deliver a policy measure that will really give uh, a shot in the arm to eurozone growth, which would be. Um, a justification for a stronger euro
1: well we've been we 've been sort of hopping around the world there, but but mm-hmm. I think the the point is that the world is incredibly interconnected now, and correlations the the reaction of one market when something else happens in another have been incredibly high, and the u s still dominates that 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 role yep. so what 's going on in the u s com- what, what can we expect and what 's coming up because again the, the u s market is starting to look very toppy. Uh, at the moment?
4: Well, I, uh, clearly the, the, the most uh, imminent uh, factor for uh, US markets will be the earnings season, uh, which started this week with Alcoa, JP Morgan as well on Friday. But we have a raft of companies next week. We have Citigroup, Intel, uh, Bank of America, General Electric, all good bellwethers for the global and US economies. And I think what's going to be interesting there is that expectations for this earnings seasons have... Uh, been marked down significantly since the so start of the anal- year.
1: Analyst expectations have been, uh, and, and presumably forward guidance from the companies. Yes, been- I
4: mean forward guidance has has disappointed. It disappointed in the fourth quarter. Um, if you take what analysts were looking for as a collective for earnings growth for the S and P 500 for the first quarter, uh, they were looking for year-on-year earnings growth of about four and a half percent at the start of the year. That has declined to expectations of minus. 0.5%. So we've, we're not expecting any profit growth at all out of US companies. Now, a lot of that will be impacted by weaker financials because of the emerging market uh, issues. And you mentioned the interconnectivity of markets. QE tapering has meant that money has flowed back away from emerging markets. So the earnings season coming up is going to be critical. And I think also as well uh, the next number of Federal Reserve meetings over the course of the coming months in relation to what they're saying.
1: And so this early, this. Corporate earnings cycle peaking is coming at a time when, if you look at cyclically adjusted price earnings, which are price earnings adjusted for inflation and yield and interest and all the rest of it, uh, those are, in the, as I understand it, are in the 10th decile of possible future returns, meaning the worst possible 10%. Yeah. Um, so how how expensive uh, is the U.S. market at the moment?
4: Well, I think if you look at it uh, on a, a very simple basis, um, PE basis are price to earnings multiple, we're trading on the S&P at the moment at around uh, 16 times. Uh, its five-year average, just in simple PE terms, has been around 13.2 times and its 10-year average has been about 13.5 times. So you could argue we're certainly 10 to 15% overvalued. Um, now, that valuation won't really matter if earnings can rebound. And we would, uh, Cantor as a house would be positive that we will see a rebound in earnings in the second half of the year. But it's what happens between now and the the, kind of the third quarter reporting season at the beginning of October uh, that really matters. And and unless companies are going to start giving more positive guidance, um, I think earnings expectations will continue to be, depressed. I would be surprised. I mean, the bar has been set very low for the first quarter earnings season, but I think a lot of companies will hide behind, if they do deliver poor results, this whole weather thing. That was a factor of all the economic releases we saw in the first quarter. Oh, the non-farm payroll figure is bad. Oh, it's the weather. And I, I think we have to read through that.
1: But the risk here really is of a 10% correction in the market, 10 to 15% of the correction in the market, where presumably the Fed will then step back in and start putting, putting some more money Yeah, in.
4: now, I'm not saying that we're going to see that correction, but I think what we're seeing in the volatility uh, states at the moment, and, and uh, when you look at where the VIX is, which is the measure of volatility in the states, it's been at kind of low uh, levels, uh, settled at levels of around 13, uh, which was kind of the consistent level it was before the 2007-2008 move in markets. Um, We saw um, volatility increase in January. We saw an 8 or 9% move in January um, in relation to the emerging market issue. Uh, The Ukrainian issue is still lurking in the background as well. People need to remember that. The geopolitical risks are still there. So we're in a phase of the markets now where this week we've fallen nearly 2% on the US markets. Year to date, most markets are down 1% to, to kind of flat uh, on a global basis with the exception of the Nikkei and some of the emerging market indices. Um, so I think we're probably going to see another retracement back maybe of 4 or 5%. The pullback in January was in the region of about 6, uh, 7, 7 or 8%. And they're the type of moves that we would expect. I think that would be healthy. I think it would be a good opportunity for people who uh, maybe are, uh, sitting on a bit of cash to look at a bit of value in the market.
1: Great. Well, look, David, thank you uh, very, very much for that uh, that roundup. I know we skipped around the world there, so I appreciate you uh, being so eclectic. Uh, David Beaton, fund manager, Cantor Fitzgerald, uh, thank you for joining us in the studio. Well, that's all for this week's show. My thanks to all of our guests, to producer Aoife Gillivan and researcher Alan Regan. Uh, I'll be back next week at 6pm. But until then, from me, Nick
0: Bullman, take care and farewell. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30
3: years.